VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're here with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Joining us today, it is The Times' very own Alison Rudd. And there is so much for us to cover today. We're going to discuss Liverpool's late show as they remain unbeaten. We'll find out what the atmosphere was like at the Emirates post Xhaka's walk-off. And we'll ask whether Preston can keep hold of Alex Neal. To Goodison Park first, though, we go. And the Everton midfielder Andre Gomez suffered a serious leg injury against Tottenham on Sunday, which left Son Hyung Min in tears and overshadowed the home side, scoring a 97th minute equaliser in the one all draw. We, of course, hope that Andre Gomez recovers soon and gets well soon as well. And the club have confirmed he has dislocated his ankle. Gregor, you've played the game at a very high level, you've experienced a similar injury tell us what you went through yeah I um, I broke my leg about 10 years ago when I was playing for Chesterfield um, I've still got metal on my leg from that from that, that uh, the operation afterwards um, hugely traumatic injury uh, I spent a year out, out, out injured from the game and, and uh, I know that he's he's got a long road ahead Um it's, it's it's psychologically it's it's very tough. It's kind of there's so many so many hurdles to overcome, mm. uh, and like I say, a long road ahead for him. It's it's there are things that you're, you're asked to do things that you you very much they don't feel natural. Like <laughs> I remember, what? Like well, what? I remember the first thing is was the day after being uh, of after having an operation, um, I was asked to get out of bed and, and stand on my own two feet, which was I thought was a joke. Mm. Um, but apparently, kind of stimulating the fractures, like the bones pushing them together, is essentially um, aids recovery. So that's a kind of example of. But there's so many of those. You know, I think within a few weeks, you're asked to be doing a single leg squat on your broken leg, which you know, because it has metal in it, you're always told this is now actually stronger than before you broke it because it's a solid piece of titanium. I think. Um, so there's just so many little kind of little psychological hurdles that you have to overcome things like um the first time you have to go into a tackle obviously is the is the most difficult thing but just moments like like get, getting out running for the first time on the on the pitch um i remember the first time i, I went out for a jog on the grass and my teammates all uh, gave me a little round of applause uh which was nice but then someone started Whistling the circus theme tune because I was still I was limping a little bit. That was a kind of typical cut, cutting humour of uh, of football dressing rooms, but you know, there's I think everyone acknowledges that you've that it's such a a traumatic uh, injury and and takes a lot of long work and sort of solitude uh, mm. to return from and and uh, obviously 
Gomez, we wish him well, but he's got a long, long journey ahead. You're lucky he didn't break your leg in Italy. I broke my ankle this summer in Italy, and they said I wasn't allowed to put any weight on it at all. So I had a week falling behind the curve. When I got back into the NHS, they were all laughing and saying, no, you're exactly right. You're supposed to start putting pressure oh, on it yeah. straight away. Yeah. It's cultural differences, yeah. even when it comes to bone <laughs> fractures. Gosh, you'd have, you'd have thought that was universal. Um, but it's interesting when you mention there the, the psychological aspect of all of this, and in particular that first tackle. That is yeah. something I've always thought about when a player comes back from such a, a horrendous injury as, as what Andre Gomez will hopefully recover from. How do you go into that first game? How do you approach it and knowing that you might have to make that first tackle, which could be one of those crunching tackles? Yeah, I mean, I think you've just you've been through so much to get to that stage. You know, when people first tell you you're like stronger than it was before, you don't believe them. And when you keep doing things that you feel are unnatural and putting yourself through overcoming these barriers, then that just seems like the last one. And it is the most testing because you'll have made tackles in training or, or maybe in practice games, reserve games, things like that. But it's never with the same, quite the same intensity as a as a first team fixture. I remember mine was a game against Port Vale. And it's one of those balls that kind of bounces loose and you you know a, a proper 50-50, two players running for the same ball and going in for it and getting up and thinking, that's that's it, it's over, it's in the past now. Everything was absolutely fine and you knew, mm. you knew you'd over, overcome and the worst was in the past. So, yeah, very difficult. And uh, it's tough to watch, actually, as well. You know, it's kind of, you see the reaction, you remember, remember kind of, the moment you feel in your leg at an unnatural angle, kind of a rush of nerves, damaged nerves. You know, it's it's just it's just awful. And and kind of the player who tackled me actually kind of offered me the support. It was it was a complete freak, like like I think um, the the tackle was that injured Gomez. It's, there was no malice, no you know mm. no malign intent. And the, the player held my hand and sort of sort of consoled me while. Well, the the medics came on the pitch, so these things happen. It's part of it's part of part of football. It's a risk you take every time you go on the pitch, and um, you know it's just one of those things that that the risk is always there. The incident that led to that injury has divided opinion on whether or not Mark and Axon was right to send off Son. Alison, what do you think was the right decision in that situation? Um, he, he shouldn't have sent him off. <sighs> I've done a referee course, as I've said a hundred times on mm. this podcast, and <laughs> you don't, you cannot judge the severity of a foul on the aftermath. It's not the way it goes. It isn't the way it goes. Even though Peter Walton in the game today on Monday says it was the right thing because he's saying it's it's, it's strange logic actually. He's saying because the player was so badly hurt, you can therefore conclude that the player making the tackle was endangering an opponent but just by being on a field of play playing football you are endangering yourself you're endangering everybody there potentially it doesn't I mean what if it isn't a logical conclusion if you go go up for a header you're you're (laughs) that's dangerous and they land if if you go for a header with a player and send them off balance and they land and roll their ankle (laughs) it's not Mm. there was you know is that reckless no it's a contact sport it's the way football it is a risk when you enter the pitch. This you know that as a player, you know that your injury is a serious risk, um, and these things are thankfully very rare. And it was a freak. It was it was a freak moment that Gomez was foot was planted in the ground at the moment of of sort of impact, and and he was off balance because of Son's 
excellence tackle, which was a foul, and yeah, probably a yellow card, but no way should it have been a red card. Well, the Premier League did release a statement, didn't they, by saying the red card for Son was for endangering the safety of a player, which happened as a consequence of his initial challenge, which sort of goes back onto the point you've just made, Alison, about where does it say within the laws of the game that the outcome of the foul dictates the punishment? No, it's, it, it, I mean, they've made a mistake. Um, it, you know, it just reminds me of the butterfly effect. I mean, you may as well book everybody <laughs> for, you know, if you hadn't had that extra sip of water just before you went on the pitch, then <laughs> that tackle would have happened half a second later and then he wouldn't have broken his leg. I'm sorry to be flippant about it, but that, I mean, you know, tripping away mm. from the fact we we're all very sorry he was hurt. It's not Son's fault he yeah. was hurt. Mm. A, he was not... Fouls are divided into into reckless and dangerous. It was potentially potentially a reckless a re- reckless foul. Um, you can you can just tell from it, it had an element of recklessness to it. But there's there's no way if you then stop at that point you stop. You can say it was dangerous. It's only dangerous because people started to rush around him and he was in a great deal of pain. Then you realise something dangerous has happened. But it's the butterfly effect. It has nothing to do with the initial tackle beyond the fact that it's football. I mean, you you may as well just just it it was it it was so wrong in so many ways, and it's interesting because there are lots and lots of reasons why people wanted VAR. Very no one, I think, I don't think anyone who backed VAR at the start thought it would take away emotion from a referee, and clearly the referee has acted emotionally because it was horrible. You don't want to see grown men crying and cradling their teammates in their arms. I mean, you know, I couldn't bear to look. Mm. It, I knew it was going to be horrible. Yeah. And that has an effect uh, on, on the coaching staff, on the players. It also has an effect on the officials. And uh, let's just say, maybe Martin Agerson just felt a bit sick to the pit of his stomach and thought, oh, this has to, you know, he wasn't thinking straight. And if VAR does anything at all, presumably if you're stuck in behind monitors at Stockley Park, you're less emotionally attached to what's going on on the pitch. And you can just have a word in his ear and say, Martin, I know that looks awful, mate, but it's, it's not a red card. Mm. And yet it appears that they didn't intervene in that one because they didn't overturn that decision and yet so many say it wasn't a red card it's, it's a complete mess really I mean I'm sure we're going to come on to talk about it. we saw how long they spent agonising over a over a handball and then you know they, they're interfering in things that they that they shouldn't be in and not where they should <laughs> it's kind of it's a complete mess uh, but as I completely agree it was just it was a trip it was a trip and then the the, the incident happened actually after Son's action really it was it was it was just a kind of a really unfortunate uh, incident that you there's no way it was there was any sort of reason for that to be a red card at all. Now boos rang around the Emirates when the final whistle went on Saturday in a week when Arsenal and booing stole the headlines. Unai Emery would have been hoping for three points to try and repair the fractured relationship with the fans. It wasn't to be though. Arsenal led for much of the game after Aubameyang's 21st minute goal. Raul Jimenez struck for Wolves in the 76th minute and the game ended 1-1. Alison, you were there then on Saturday. What was the mood like? In particular, I'm thinking the focus so much was on Granite Xhaka and what happened at the time before when he stormed off the pitch last week. So what was the feeling like in the Emirates? Well, first of all, I'd like to be positive. I, I, there wasn't much of a hangover from the from the Granite Xhaka debacle. Okay. Although 
it does slightly peeve me that they always say the um, attendance is just over 60,000 at the Emirates. There were a lot of empty seats again, as there were in the previous game against Crystal Palace. But anyway, the the crowd did get behind the team. I mean, partly perhaps because Granit Xhaka wasn't in the squad, an element of fan power. Partly perhaps Mesut Ozil starting a Premier League game. Again, maybe a touch of... Um, fan power because they've been chanting his name um, I suspect more as a way to let Unai Emery know that they don't like his tactical pattern as opposed to them being madly in love with Mesut Ozil he's had a odd relationship with them in recent years but it was positive to start with but what what happens and and indeed happened last season and happened towards the end of the Wenger era is as soon as something doesn't go quite right in that they the the crowd don't give the team any sense that they believe in them. It's it's strange, and and I know it's chicken and egg. And you could say, well, of course they don't, because Arsenal have given them lots of reasons to to feel doubtful that they can see a game through. But it's not it's not yet a trend that Arsenal go on to to to, to let points slip once they've taken the lead at the Emirates. This is a relatively new phenomenon. It's it's you know it's it's not something they've had to put up with for years. It's just this sense of for so many years, we've we've the criticism of Arsenal has been where's where's the team's backbone, where's the team's identity. Wenger was accused of not moving with the times, not realizing the amount of energy and strength you need to to progress in the league. And Emery doesn't seem to have addressed it. So uh, it took me, honestly, <laughs> I think for the first time in my life, it took me fifteen minutes to work out the formation because I couldn't quite believe what I was seeing. Um, Wolves Wolves are a good team and um, they summoned 25 shots. Okay, maybe they didn't know that they were going to summon 25 shots, but they're a good team and they decided to play one holding midfield player in Gwenduzi, whereas normally it's two. They're used to playing with two, two holding, two holding. They played one and even though that was Gwenduzi's role, he was all over the place. So he didn't, it just, if, if you're going to play one, you play disciplined there were players moving into positions that just 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 were irrational basically so they without even knowing that wolves could attack if if you'd been if you, if you had been wolves and gone there with an incredibly conservative game plan you would have very quickly thought we can see holes we will go for it they were invite arsenal were inviting pressure it was kind of weird that 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 they had the lead for so long arsenal and but by the time wolves equalized in the second half then the crowd just started to grumble and yes there were there were boos at the final whistle and the fans at the Emirates they're amongst the type that like to interact with the press box so the fans will call you and say shout out to you and say hope you're going to write about Emery's <laughs> stupid substitutions because they don't that, that doesn't happen everywhere you think it might do but it doesn't no. I mean but okay. Arsenal it regularly does so they're basically they're not buying into his tactic tactics has that all, you say that happens at, uh, since Emery's been there or even no at Arsenal it's a thing at Arsenal, Just at Arsenal. Well, at least right. in my quarter of a century of covering football that's always Gosh. been a thing at Arsenal okay. but it's, at some grounds no one will say a word I think it, the, the kind of Xhaka thing it, over, it glossed over the fact briefly that Arsenal do look so badly coached and and organised essentially and you're, you're right I mean Guendouzi if he's someone you're expecting to, to hold a disciplined uh, role in the team then you're in trouble you know and he's not the only one it's just I think a team like Wolves and the, how well they are coached 
and how disciplined they are and how well organised they are and how much they know their jobs in the team it kind of it just it shames Arsenal in the way that the way that they're they're set up I think I think that they do they, how can you allow 25 shots on goal at home against Wolves if you're Arsenal at the moment I don't I think I think Emery Emery really the, the, the clock is running down on Emery's time as Arsenal manager I think well, I mean, Emery said afterwards, the result is a bad result, but tactically, we worked like we wanted. Did that look... Well, that's it? digging your hole, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's, it's strange. I, I, I don't really get it, because in his public utterances at press conferences, anything where he's in front of a, a gathered media, he, his English is very poor and he doesn't answer the question, and it becomes very frustrating. There are a record low number of reporters who attend his weekly press conferences, and they say, we just don't really know what he's saying. He doesn't answer the questions, and we can't really understand him. And at the um, tube station, not, not, not in North London, in South London, when I got home, tube station, you know they have thought for the day, sometimes written on the boards right, at tube stations? Yes. Some, someone had written thought for the day, Emery, good evening. That was it. That was their thought. <laughs> but and in, in that one thought, thought of the day, they're just summing up. They know he would have said to everybody, good evening, and that would be all that anyone could have understood. I mean, it's, it's a bit cruel, but the only, I wouldn't mention it except that when people have spoken to him in a smaller group or one-on-one... He's funny and he's engaging and his English is a lot better. Well, what's that about? So why isn't he making more of an effort to communicate and to listen to the question? And the contrast with Wenger is startling. Wenger never ducked a single question. You could ask him, did you enjoy Joker the movie, Arsene Wenger? And he would go into great detail as to why he didn't like going to the cinema. He wouldn't just say no. So he he, he never ducked a question. Uh, Emery seems to just not hear things in case they're not what he wants. And given that... After, after the problem with with Jacka swearing at the crowd and the crowd booing him, and he had a role in that as well because he he took him off in the sixty first minute. That's quite early in a game to take yeah. someone off. You're sort of saying you're at fault here. You're throwing him under the bus, as they mm. say in football parlance. You're, you're saying to the crowd, eh, he didn't do it very well. He had a role in all that, and a good manager would explain exactly why he's not in the squad, what he values in him. Um, the the announcement from Jacka, the apology, the club held that up, not not the player. It's uh, communication just seems to be slightly awry at that club at the moment, and I think part of the reason is that they definitely do not want uh, to lose a second manager because of because of fan power. Wenger went in the way he went because there was this, there were banners in the air saying. You know, people were hiring planes, for goodness sake, to save Wenger out. It got to the point where they had to bow to populism. And I don't think the club wants the next manager to be uh, let go in, in similar situation. They want it to be a more logical progression than just because because there's a feeling that he's uh, not connecting well with the, with the supporter base. So why, why, is it, why is it Arsenal, though? Why, is it, why, why is, does there seem to be a, an Arsenal problem? This disconnect with the with the support more than more than any other club in the Premier League. Well, partly I think it's when you've when you've had it. I mean, can you remember how people gushed over Arsenal? You, you know, their long unbeaten run, the beautiful football. Everyone's favourite player was Thierry Henry. They're 
you become used to being the darlings. And when it goes wrong, it, it, it's, the, it's, it's very difficult to think, ah, we need to refocus how we deal with fans and the media and everybody because we're not, we're not, we're not in that place anymore. They're self, it's like, it's like, it's like women who grow old but carry on dressing like they're 25. You know, you, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to grow into your <laughs> evolution. <laughs> okay. That wasn't, that wasn't uh, thrown at Natalie I mean, or I don't know anybody I know. I know what you're saying, Alison. <laughs> um, but it's interesting uh, because Duncan Castles wrote in the Sunday Times that Arsenal have their eye on a certain Mourinho after Jose was understood to have gone for dinner with Arsenal's head of football, Raul Sanyehi. I thought you were going to say after Joe. Uh, asked that question last week on the podcast. Oh well, no, <laughs> producer no. Joe. <laughs> oh, we'll be, we'll uh, have to do debrief on that one later. But Arsenal have denied that. You've already mentioned Gregor that there is perhaps some pressure on him because his time is running out at Arsenal. But is someone like Jose Mourinho going to make that connection with the fans? God no. <laughs> I mean, I think that would be like the most remarkable kind of trolling of a club support by the by an owner an ownership <laughs> in history really to know the sort of the loathing of Josie Mourinho from the vast majority of, of Arsenal fans um no I mean I I would be absolutely astounded if that if that happens um it just is the antithesis of of what Arsenal Arsenal believe they are after the sort of years of Wenger what they believe they've become and that's kind of that's the root of of all this sort of rancor inside the stadium, they're not they're, the years of decline under Wenger, and and they they feel that they they should be challenging to win the Premier League of every single year because they because they were something sort of beautiful under Wenger in their peak years, you know, and since then it's been decline. But the the reason I was I was asking Alison is that I just feel like that that doesn't seem to be happening in Manchester United. Manchester United are. Are in a massive kind of downturn at the moment, but there doesn't seem to be the same sort of rancor from this from the stands, or sort of almost like all out sort of abuse of the of the players. Well, there was the under Mourinho. There that was, was directed at the manager, was, and it's not now because there's still a huge residue of love for Solskjaer. There's no residue of love for Emery because there's no connection to Arsenal. But that was directed at the manager. I think it feels like it's, with Arsenal, it's directed towards the players on the pitch as well. Well, again, I mean, it goes back to once you've decided as a fan base, someone like Granite Jacker isn't good enough. I think you'd find you'd, you'd struggle to, to go out into North London and go around the street and find anyone who thinks Granite Jacker is a great, great player. And so they think, why is he being picked? Why is he being picked? Why is he captain? Why is he being picked? We know. We know our football. We know he's not up to scratch. Whereas, in fact, it's, it's, it's fairly basic. He's combative and committed and probably very good in training. And that's why the manager likes him. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Liverpool left it late at Villa Park to keep their unbeaten start to the season going. Andrew Robertson with the equaliser in the 87th minute and then Sadio Mane in the 94th with the winner, which was enough to take all three points back to Liverpool and keep their six-point lead at the top of the table. Jurgen Klopp's side joined good company. They became the third side to reach 31 points from 11 games. The other two, Chelsea in 2005-06 and Manchester City in 2017-18. Both went on to win the title. So, Alison, is it Liverpool's title to lose now? Big smile on your face. Yeah. <laughs> Big grin. I'm smiling so much I can't talk. <laughs> I can't get my tongue around my teeth. Um, it certainly feels that way. I, as you know, I was at um, the Emirates and, and they were both three o'clock kickoffs and I could see, you know, notifications that it, it was still Villa winning 1-0 and you're going to say I'm making this up. I'm not making this up. I just thought it's okay. This is this is the way it's going this season. We concede a goal, it's okay. We will I thought maybe it might just be one point, but I figured that was all right. But you 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 you've just got this sense that they will keep going and not panic and and, and Klopp, Klopp has said this several times now that if if there's a, something happens in in the game, usually they concede a goal. He's very pleased with the, about the fact that the team have faith in the methods and they keep going. So against Villa, they just kept crossing the ball, not not in a mad, desperate way, in an intelligent, beautifully delivered way. Cross, 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 knowing that you know, a team like Villa, they're gonna they're gonna tire. You need a lot of conv- you need a lot of concentration to deal with. You know, we have the best fullbacks in the world, pair of fullbacks in the world. That that quality they're delivering to be able to withstand it and credit to Villa that they did for most of the game, you have to be completely on it. And the minute you, I mean, and people were saying to me on Twitter, you know, they're, they're looking slightly tired now at the back, Villa. Liverpool knew that would happen, kept going, didn't, didn't, you know, didn't think we have to change it up or make crazy substitutions. We can just keep with the pattern. Our crossing is excellent. It will reap dividends. And that's what happened. Four, I think four, 40 crosses from... Hang on, let me have a look. It was phenomenal. Yeah, 40 crosses in that game. Hmm. You, you've got... I mean, James Gearbrandt wrote, you know, a piece in the, in the game saying, you know, if you keep repeating one action, isn't that stupidity? Or or it's faith. You, you have to decide which it is. And that'll be the crux of whether Liverpool win the title or not. That and, faith. And you saw the determination as well. Trent Alexander-Arnold hit the free kick and went, Deflected over the bar, he's racing over to the corner to to take the corner, and I think that you know Dean Smith, the Aston Villa manager, said afterwards that you know we concentration slipped for two moments and at the end of the game, I don't think they could have defended that second goal. 
It was just a remarkable... There's no way you could be in front of Manny. There was a remarkable angle of the header and the, the ball in from, from Trent Alexander-Arnold. I don't think there's any way... If, the only way that would be defended is if it randomly hit someone in the box. You couldn't be in front of Manny. It was a, a great move and really his agility to kind of contort his body to get that direct into the into the far corner. So, and set pieces are something that Liverpool continually kind of are coming up with the goods with. Uh, and, you know, it's making all the difference for them at the moment. Well, it was Liverpool's 35th, 90th minute winner in the Premier League. That's at least 10 more than any other side in the competition's history. Five of those late winners have come since the start of last season, which is more than any other team. Alison, you were saying there, clearly watching the Arsenal game, but keeping across my, what was happening at Villa Park. But you obviously had belief that this team can turn it around, can either get a point, as you thought maybe it could end up as, but it end up with a three points that they took away. What does that sort of say about the mentality then of this Liverpool side right now? Well, it's easy to try to, oh, they must be very strong mentally. Actually, I think the, the, the difficult part is remaining relaxed when it's going against you and believing it's going to happen. And that all stems from Klopp's demeanour. And the players absolutely adore him because he, do, he they know he makes them better as players, but he takes the pressure off. So th- th- there is a really good dynamic there. And people were also posting um, the fans at Villa Park. And it was such a contrast to what I was seeing at the Emirates in that, you know, the, the more the minutes ticked by, the more the fans were, were urging the team on. There was no... They weren't going to give up. So if you're the players, why would you give up? I mean, you, it's it's a it's a a contract. And and going back to the Granite Jacker thing, I don't think I don't think if you're a football fan, I think you've 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 ruined the terms of the contract. The contract should be ripped up if you boo a player or boo your team. I would even go further and say, why are you there if you're not cheering them on and and playing your part in it? Football. If you just step back from it, football's stupid, isn't it? It's daft. You, you're just stupid. People spend a lot of money on it. It defines their lives. It, you know, they care what their children are. They care what their parents are. It, it divides families. People row about it. It means you're happy for a week or you're sad for a week. It's, got it's stupid, stupid, <laughs> stupid. Except that it's not stupid if you take it as they're part of you. You're actually getting emotional and caring because they're part of your life. And just as you wouldn't, you know, if you had, you know, your brother or sister playing in a, in a game, you'd cheer them come what may, whether in a running race or cricket or whatever, you'd cheer them come what may. You do that with your team. And they're so desperate to win the Premier League title at Liverpool. I think they know. I think they know it might. it's going to be so narrow. Maybe that tiny, tiny thing that tips it in Liverpool favour is that the fans will not give up. Well... They didn't give up and they came away with the win. But unfortunately, we have to talk about VAR again. Lots of incidents that we could focus on from the weekend, but in particular at Villa Park, Liverpool had a goal disallowed. Uh, If you haven't seen it by now, basically, Roberto Firmino had a goal ruled out for being offside. The part of his body that was offside was his armpit. So, Gregor, (laughs) is your armpit part of your arm? (laughs) Should it be offside? It shouldn't have been offside, but your armpit isn't part of your arm. I mean, are we really t- discussing that? Or are we going to analyse? <laughs> we'll put that to one side. That is producer Joe's question. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's always one. Uh, it's just become a farcical. You know, people are questioning the 
the technology, whether the technology exists to actually definitively rule whether a player is offside or not. And that was one of these instances that was so tight. Um, and it's it's kind of, I think that and and the handball, um, Delhi Alley at Everton, that kind of, I've still not really been in a stadium and, and sort of experienced it firsthand, but it seems that really is detrimental to the experience of, of watching the game, I think, hugely. Mm. Um, and ultimately, it's kind of just opening up another layer of subjectivity. There's not, there's no defining, definitive answer, you know, um, for a lot of these decisions. And you look at the De La Feu, uh foul by Jorginho in the, the Chelsea Watford game. I mean, it's, it's a nonsense. And I, I just can't understand how the Premier League have managed to bat themselves into this corner. It's incredible that they, they've gone so far from one, one way of having this high bar and then all of a sudden swinging back to, to this. And, and, and also kind of being revealed that there might not even be technology to, that exists to, to get the right decisions on offside or not. So why, why have we got it? Do you think the fact that we're talking about VAR every week it feels that every weekend that is then coming up there's more pressure on the the referee at Stockley Park to either get the you know to get the right decision so for example with Delhi Alley it took what two and a half three minutes something three minutes, like that yeah. to get that decision and and maybe that's why we're now seeing decisions take longer because they're so worried about the criticism that they could receive i think there's every chance that's there's truth in that yes um and you've got to throw in the kind of the complication of the the new handball rule as well. But it was just it was just a nonsense watching that in in real time, seeing how long and see how many how many how many angles and different points of view were seeing the the, the incident. And it, there's no way it should be a handball because Deli Ali's not even his his arm might be in a, an unnatural position. He's not looking at it. It's not. I just think it's a complete mess. Really, I'm, I'm amazed. I just don't know how the Premier League has managed to back themselves into this corner within three months mm. of in, having introduced this. Mm. The only, I mean, the thing is, for VAR to be accurate is that you need VAR to review VAR and then you need VAR to review the review of VAR, VAR yes. and, and then just keep going. <laughs> and that's why I think the Premier League should just say, oh, we don't want it anymore. Be- because a lot of the problems have stemmed from the fact that they introduced it in a different way to everyone else. They wanted to protect yeah. the integrity of the product and the product is fa- fast-paced, intense... Uh, Premier League football has its own identity and that's why millions of people around the world watch it. They don't want to watch another version of La Liga or or German football or whatever. They want to watch the Premier League. It has its own identity and if you have lots of stoppages, it slows the game up and it just looks like any but other the, product. But they've also somehow managed to make it that fans, quite rightly, would rather they got got to the right decision more than whether the game was stopped. So now we're calling for people to ref- referees to go over to look at the, the monitors on the pitch yeah. side. And before the season started, that was like people were saying, "No, this how long, how slow is this going to be?" And you know, ruining the games and the match experience. But we're actually realizing that it's more important that you get the right decision or not. Because but you're not going to get the right decision just because somebody looks at a box at the side of the screen either. Well, you're you're at least giving some responsibility to the man in the middle, I think, and rather than as we've talked about so yeah, many times, well. some distant guy go, in Stockley Park. Just go with what he said and what his assistant said. I in his agree. Ear. I agree. I think if there was technology that exists existed to rule rule whether something was offside or not it would be worth doing but everything else is essentially opening up 
another layer of subjectivity and it's just it's just like every single week we're seeing decisions and debating things in more infinite detail but the problem with something like offside is it's factual it's not subjective yeah but but we we with the technology doesn't exist to tell us whether mm. tell us the decision is correct or not people have said that about when the the freeze the frame is frozen it's all wobbly the, the lines are all yeah, wobbly but, it doesn't make any players sense players are moving quicker than this than this split second yeah. of frame so it doesn't exist so really we're still just freezing it at one moment and and it's almost like he was trying to make the decision he wanted on that occasion. It was it was bizarre to watch. Mm. Um, so I just can't believe that within three months we're in this position. I can't believe that people actually thought VAR was some sort of magical. They, they, it's not magic. It's another bloke in a in a in a place in a called Stockley Park <laughs> with a couple. And the monitors. I've done it. I've been at Stockley Park. The monitors aren't that clear, actually. You know, they're, they're quite small. I get a better view at home of, of a replay than I would if I was at Stockley Park on my bigger, expensive <laughs> So I d- it's That's like awesome. that the pressure, the pressure you've got, and you are under pressure, you've got these big red buttons in front of you. You've got an assistant who's there to rewind to the point you want to rewind to. You're under pressure not to hold the game up for too long. That is the mantra at Stockley Park. Get things done quickly. And so they're highly, supposed to be highly trained in working out the... the uh, incident you're supposed to analyse in case you're analysing the wrong one. For yes. example, there's no point analysing a handball if there was offside in the build-up. So make sure you're on top of the right order in which to review things. But, if, you know, pretty quickly we've seen there's now a fear that if you're analysing an incident from different angles, the TV company that's broadcasting it will be doing the same thing. By the end of the programme, because they'll have had 20, 30, 40 minutes to do it in, they'll be able to show something that you've not seen in your 30 seconds. So I don't see the point of building an extra layer of stress and inaccuracy and subjectivity. It's not adding anything to the product that is the Premier League. Just make sure the referees get paid a bit more, the, the assistants are better, give them more respect. Just focus your attention on that and, and saying to everyone, look, remember how it used to be when we were all getting really upset with VAR? Just give the referee a bit of slack and go for it. It's finding holes in the laws of the game as well. The handball law is a, is a farce. And, you know, again, we've been debating about this sort of, whether a challenge is reckless or not, and things look very different in slowed down, you know, freeze frames than they do in, in, in real life and sort of and what's real, real football? what's real football? Slow-mo or what you, what you see on the pitch? Absolutely. And, you you know, the, there was the, the tackle of uh, Craig Dawson, the Watford player at, uh, on Emerson, I think, in the Chelsea game at the weekend, which which he was booked for. Um, and that was that was deemed reckless. It was it was an absolute farce as well. He, he, he won the ball cleanly and it was a strong tackle. Um, but it was it was kind of it was deemed that that was a reckless challenge. He was endangering the opponent. When his, if he hadn't gone to ground, he would be endanger, endangering himself. I, I just think you know I think I think the laws need need to be looked at and tightened up and rewritten and sort of because it's almost something for the referees to hide, hide behind now. You know we're saying intent doesn't matter. I, I think I think there are occasions when it does. There was no intent from Son to to, mm. to hurt or injure. Um, Gomez, it was a trip, and something happened after the event. So I think the, it's it's also point finding holes in the laws of the game. So there was VAR controversy at Villa Park, and European Cup games aside this week, all eyes are looking ahead to the big game 
at Anfield on Sunday as the top two go head-to-head. Liverpool take on Manchester City. And I wonder if the mind games have already begun from the City camp with Pep Guardiola. Here's what he had to say on Sadio Mane. We arrived in the locker room, it was 1-1 and after 1-2. So what happened many times and Liverpool has done in the last years is because he's a special talent. Sometimes he's diving, sometimes he's this talent to score incredible goals in the last minute. He's a, he's a talent. <laughs> So that is Pep Guardiola's take on Mane, referring to him, Alison, as a diver. <laughs> Why on earth do you think Pep Guardiola has already started talking about the opposition? I think he might be regretting having done so. There mm. is, n- with the greatest generosity of spirit, I cannot think of a, a, a good reason for doing that. Anfield was already going to be up for this game slightly, don't you think? It will now be, (laughs) the atmosphere will be so intense. If you're Sadio Mane, you're going to be thinking, what are you going to be thinking? Oh, he must be really scared of me or is he trying to put me off? And your teammates will be so behind you just saying, you know, we think you're going to have an absolutely brilliant game. Everyone will be on tenterhooks to see if he does a diving celebration at Guardiola's feet when he scores his hat trick. <laughs> I, I, I do not. And from from you know internally, from the city perspective, as a player, do you want to hear your manager suggesting that an esteemed colleague in the realms of football picking on the fact he's he's a diver? Most forwards get accused of it at some point. It's not. It's just. I don't know, bad form in a way. And it does speak of, A, somebody who's had it so good in his footballing career, he's not used to needing to go to mind games. So he's not very good at them for a start, <laughs> if this is a mind game. Or, 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 or he's just telling the world he's slightly scared because City haven't won Anfield since 2003. Mm. And if this title race is going to go to the go the distance, City need to do something at Anfield. It just say, seems very strange timing to bring this up. They've just come back to beat Southampton and it seems as though Sadio Mane is on Pep Guardiola's mind. It's all kind of clearly premeditated, you know? He thought of that. He, he knew he was going into the press conference to say that because there's no reason, there's no reason, as Alison said, for him to say it when the game's a week away, you know? Um, and he's just played, <laughs> just played Southampton, as you say. So it does point to him sort of, fear's the wrong word, but a little bit of a sort of Acknowledgement that they're really in a in a tough fight for to kind of claw back this the the deficit to Liverpool this season. Um, and as Alan said, it it wasn't very impressively sort of executed either. It was just so clear, <laughs> you know. Maybe maybe wait till a few days before the game if you're going to start mind games. It was just it was so clear and obvious. But it is an it's just so strange for him to brought it up and, and maybe Alison it is because he's feeling the heat, knowing that, as you pointed out, they haven't beaten Liverpool at Anfield for, for quite a while, and they desperately need to probably get six points against Liverpool to turn around this, this league situation. Yeah, I mean Guardiola knows the narrative will completely turn on its head if they were to beat Liverpool at Anfield and that's in a sense that's why it's so important because everything seems to be sort of going Liverpool's way at the moment there's there's a sense there's a there's a sort of bubble of belief around Anfield and it's it is illogical it's early November and that might be annoying Guardiola because you know, he's, he, he knows what it takes to to win the title 
he's probably thinking, Klopp doesn't know, I do know. And it doesn't... And, and it, But in the past, there's been a lot of... You know, they have been the media darling city and the style of football. A lot of neutrals have backed them, you know, have enjoyed them winning and they do play thrilling and they they score lots of goals and most importantly of all they have momentum the moment momentum is really with Liverpool and yet just one in just one game he could turn all that on its head and that that he knows if that happened that could um pull the rug a little bit from under Liverpool might bring back um doubts oh it's happening again we're playing really well but we just can't be as good as City so it it it, it really matters beyond the points available that that it does change the narrative so maybe he thinks you know City have dropped more points than Liverpool so far we we can we can we can sort of erase that with me being really clever with what I say beforehand I think if we return to matters on the pitch I think it makes for an exciting game as you say they do need to claw back points here and these games have been quite cagey recently. It's almost like these, the two sort of titans of the Premier League of nature then sort of thought, this is best decided elsewhere. <laughs> we'll just kind of, we'll both be happy with a point from this. You know, a, a missed penalty would was the kind of, the, the, the biggest chance for Man, Man City to beat them. And I think that was the last game of the game before. Um, so it's kind of... But don't you feel this time a point isn't enough for Guardiola? Exactly, that's what I mean. I think they they have to go and try and win the game, really. I know, as you say, we are in November, and there are there's there's a lot of football to be played. But Liverpool look like they're not going to drop many points. Like, and when I say many, you know, it, it could be like a handful. And Manchester City know that he knows that. That's that's why we've seen seen the the main games begin. Yeah. But on the pitch, he's going to have to rather than as I say, it's been they've been cagey affairs over the last couple of seasons. I think it could be slightly more open in terms of Manchester City coming out and trying to but really he try also knows if if Liverpool win that game against City the next time they're 1-0 down with 89 minutes gone they'll do it again because it'll just look even more like it's destiny he, he needs to interrupt this sense that Liverpool can pull it out the hat at every single opportunity now, Paul Gallagher's second-half penalty gave Preston a 1-0 win at Charlton on Sunday and moved Alex Neal's side to the top of the table in the Championship at the time of this recording. Preston were playing for the first time since responding forcibly to reports of boss Alex Neal being a target for fellow Championship side Stoke City. Speculation now suggests that Stoke are going to move away from Alex Neal as a potential successor to Nathan Jones, who was sacked last week. The situation that Preston find themselves in is is intriguing because one, I don't think many would have expected Preston to be top of the championship as things stand. But keep impressing as they are, they will have a job on their hands to keep hold of Neil, won't they? Yes, I think I get the impression that Neil kind of feels feels at home there. I think there was a chance, there was an opportunity for him to leave for West Brom, I believe, uh, last season. Um, and he opted to stay in the end. Um, and it's, I don't know, it feels like a good fit. He's... Preston are a club who've who've been run pretty intelligently for for quite a while now. Really good dealings in the transfer market. Score of the lower leagues, League of Ireland. Actually, they've been really really good in Alan Brown, um, Sean Maguire, two really good players. Um, and I think you know they're all signed for a very very modest fees. Often sold on a good big profit. Peter Risdale, the chairman there of of Leeds fame, he's actually been doing doing a good job there. Um, and Alex Neil's a kind of 
unflashy character. He just, you know, he says it how it is. Good coach, uh, and I think the players really enjoy playing for him. And I think I think I get the, get the impression it would have to be something pretty spectacular for him to leave. And certainly, the clubs we're talking about, like Stoke at the foot of the table, is not an offer that is going to be looking very appealing. Um, and he's, he's he's done brilliant work wherever he's been. Really, I think you know started off at Hamilton Academicals in uh, in Scotland, Norwich promotion to Premier League, relegated. That's you know uh, it was a tough tough ask for him. And the second season, it t- things turned a little bit toxic. Um, there've been some really bad transfer dealings, and so there were some guys on on big big money, and really didn't really want to be playing at Norwich or in the Championship really. And I think that. I think that did for him really in the end, um, but he's he's kind of reinvented himself at, at Preston North End. One of the smallest wage bills in the championship, I think it stands at thirteen million. Maybe clubs have three times that that figure, and yet they're challenging at the top of the league. So they're a club who have been close on on a kind of a regular basis, and and uh, put put runs together last season that took them into sort of playoff contention and just fell away at the end. But it looks like a few additions in the summer. Uh, Patrick Bauer. At, from Charlton and, and at centre half has been a revelation for them and are much much more solid defensively and they've got a lot of kind of good attacking talent and people like Paul Gallagher who's who's still going strong in midfield for them so um, it'll be interesting to see whether they can kind of go the season uh, against clubs have got far far better re- resources but I, I get the impression that Alex Neil it would take something special for him to leave. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guest today, Alison Rudd. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. And we'll be back on Thursday. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum.